very much. And he came out to California a few weeks after, and he wanted to meet me because he was to do another picture for Lily Pauls with Henry Fonda, and he said, I think I'd like Dorothy Fields to do the lyrics. And that was the first time I was presented to Mr. Kern. And when I met him, walked into the room, kind of shaking a bit, he left the piano and came up and kissed me. Well, that was the start of a very wonderful association with Jerome Kern and myself. That was Jerome Kern, lavish with praise and affection if he thought you deserved it, and equally stern if he thought the occasion demanded that. And through it all, both in Hollywood and in New York, he burned his energy at a furious rate every waking hour of the day. At length, the pace began to tell. The outside world didn't know the true story, but Robert Russell Bennett did. Toward the end of his career, he had a terrible sickness. We were working there in Hollywood. I had gone out especially to do the orchestrations, arrange the music of High, Wide, and Handsome. And I had been seeing Jerry Kern every day, and one day his wife called me up and said he wouldn't be in. Said he was not very well. And he would be all right, but he was not very well. For some reason or other, the seriousness of his illness was either not apparent to him or they didn't want the world to know that this great man was as low as he was. He was stricken with a heart condition. And he actually is said by doctors to have died. But the miracles of modern medicine were able to bring him back. And he lived eight years after that during which time he wrote such hits as Long Ago and Far Away, All the Things You Are, and quite a number of other very beautiful songs. He always referred to himself as living on borrowed time. Most of us, I suppose, would be tempted to let well enough alone after an experience like that to sit in the corner in our rocking chairs, but not Jerome Kern. True, the pace was slower now, but the beautiful melodies continued to flow from his pen. And one of them, one of the most beautiful, is remembered by his attorney, Howard Reinheimer. I recall in the spring of 1940, Oscar Hammerstein and I uh, happened to be going to California, and we were in the same car on the chief. In the course of the trip, Oscar kept himself confined to his compartment, uh, and when he emerged upon arriving at Los Angeles, he had completed the lyric of a song which he had only commenced at the start of the trip. Uh, the very next morning, I dropped in at Jerry Kern's house to pay him my usual visit on my arrival in California. In great excitement, he dragged me over to his piano and sat down and with one hand, with his right hand, uh, battered out the notes to a new melody that he informed me he had just completed. I looked at the lyrics, and there was the song, The Last Time I Saw Paris.
Time I Saw Paris. Written on borrowed time. Also a part of these later years is a warm picture of Kern the Man. Again, Dorothy Fields. I was with him so much, I think from about 1934 until 1938. I was with him constantly. I was part of that family, and they were part of my family. And it was, wasn't a question of any formality. I would run over in the morning, and Jerry would be out doing something, some bit of business, like going to the farmer's market or looking for an antique. And I'd have coffee with Eva in the breakfast room. And when he'd come in, we'd sit down, start to work. And then he'd think of something else he wanted to do, like finding out from the bookie what horses were good in the third race at Santa Anita. So he'd knock off work to do that for a little while, and he, he loved to play. And every night, I think for two years, when the game Monopoly first came out, we used to play every single night. Eva Kern, Jerry Kern, Betty Kern, and Johnny or Dick Green, who, who were around the house at the time, myself. And we'd play till two or three in the morning. And there was always a, I don't know, a kind of family feeling about my association with the Kearns. It was soon after these happy days that Dorothy Fields moved to New York. The Kearns stayed in Hollywood. And then in 1945, plans were laid to put Showboat back on the New York stage. And for Jerome Kern, there was only one place to be, backstage at the theater, supervising the revival of his finest Broadway show. Once more, Dorothy Fields. Jerry and Eva were coming east. And uh, Oscar uh, and Dick, I think, were going to revive Showboat. And, of course, being such great friends, we had made an appointment to have dinner with Eva and Jerry the night after they arrived, but I was having lunch with Eva the day after they arrived. I called early in the morning. Eva slept late, but Jerry was up shaving, and as, I, as he answered the phone, he said, All right, you know better than to wake us up at this hour. I'll leave a message for Eva on the, on the washstand mirror. And he wrote a message in soap on the mirror that said, Meet Dorothy at Pavillon at 1 o'clock. So I met Eva for lunch at 1 o'clock at Pavillon, and we had a wonderful lunch and sat over many cups of coffee, as Eva and I usually do. And she walked me to Tiffany's, and then she was going back to the St. Regis. The next thing I knew, there was a message for me home to go to Welfare Island. You see, Jerry had intended to leave the St. Regis where they were living and to walk around to Ackerman, the antique shop on 57th Street, to buy a brake front. And he walked up Park Avenue, and as he passed the Bible Institute, he collapsed. He had no identification, except an ASCAP button. And when the ambulance picked him up, they rushed him over to Welfare Island and called ASCAP. They finally reached Oscar Hammerstein, who called me, of course called Eva first, and we all went to Welfare Island where we spent about four days. Jerry was unconscious, and they had put him in a ward, but all the little old men there agreed to be pushed and huddled together so that this great man could have his bed in a great long room just screened by white screens. And we sat there day after day. Finally, they moved Jerry up to doctor's hospital. He never regained consciousness, although they tried so hard to get through to him. And finally, someone said, Oscar, why don't you go upstairs to Jerry's room and sing the song he loved better than any song he ever wrote. And that song was, I've Told Every Little Saw. And so Oscar leaned over 
and sang it very softly into Jerry's ear. And Oscar says sometimes, well, maybe I did see the flicker of an eyelid. Maybe he didn't. But Jerry never did regain consciousness, and he died on a Sunday morning in November. This has been a special transcribed presentation by NBC News.